Why is Putin so obsessed with history and what does history have to teach Putin? In the following program, Associate Professor Evgeny Pavlov tries to answer these questions in his talk, Putin and History, for the Jeff Rice Lecture, which was held recently at the University of Canterbury and sponsored by the Canterbury Historical Association for the History Department. Evgeny Pavlov is Associate Professor of Russian and History at the University of Canterbury and Vice President of the Australia and New Zealand Slavists Association. I'd like to start uh, on a, a very personal note because this, of course, is um, uh, something that um, is not an abstract subject uh, for me at the moment. Um, it is with great uh, disbelief and horror uh, that we've been watching for the past days, uh, the atrocities uh, unfolding in, in the heart of Europe, in Ukraine, the likes of which have not been seen since um, 1945. Um, first thing I'd like to say uh, is that um, I would like to extend uh, uh, my wholehearted support for Ukraine, um, its people. Um, uh, these are people who, whom I know, um, people who have friends, people who have family. Um, I would like to acknowledge uh, our colleagues, um, some of whom might be watching today, um, who have families in Ukraine uh, that have been very badly affected uh, by what's going on. I'd like to acknowledge our students, uh, our Ukrainian students at UC, um, who have been um, also, of course, um, watching with horror uh, the events taking place in Ukraine, uh, fearing for the safety um, of them, of their loved ones there. <clears throat> it's um, um, it's it's a conflict. Conflict. It's, it's a war, of course, war that uh, Putin calls uh, a special military operation that has already caused uh, enormous um, civilian and military uh, casualties. Uh, the figures, of course, are yet to be um, fully verified, but... Um, if what we're hearing is correct, uh, and the figures that are coming from the Ukrainian side, for example, indicate um, um, at least 11,000 Russian military casualties. Um, there are hundreds upon hundreds of civilian casualties, of course. Um, we don't know, I, well, I haven't had the figure for Ukrainian casualties um, as of yet. But if these figures are true, and uh, the order of them is most likely uh, accurate. This again uh, represents something that has not been seen uh, in a very, very long time. Just for comparison, the Soviet, during the Soviet, the entire seven years of Soviet um, 
occupation of Afghanistan, um, the Soviet military casualties were at 25,000 um, or thereabouts. And uh, the worst year of that war was 1981, in which about 6,000 uh, Soviet soldiers were killed. Now, again, the figures that we have uh, so far from the Ukrainian side um, are 11, 12,000 um, uh, Russian soldiers. And if that is true, then of course this is, um, this is just uh, completely unheard of and um, is uh, in just 12 days. The uh, atrocities uh, that have been happening in, in Ukraine, uh, as you've been obviously following, um, I'm sure the news, um, the uh, Ukrainian cities uh, being bombed, um, civilian um, targets being bombed, uh, people dying in, um, as they're on their way to, to the shops trying to get food uh, for their families, um, their houses um, disappearing in the middle of the night. Um, and uh, of course, the enormous humanitarian crisis that is also still unfolding with uh, over um, 1.5 million people now having crossed the border uh, from Ukraine into Poland um, and uh, Czechoslovakia, Hungary uh, and Slovakia, uh, sorry, Czechoslovakia, Slovakia, sorry, uh, Hungary and other neighboring countries. Um, and, and that is still continuing. In Russia itself, uh, the immediate repercussions have been uh, extremely severe, although, of course, uh, uh, nothing compared to what Ukraine is going through. But uh, what's in store for Russia uh, is, is a severe economic crisis as a result of the, of the sanctions uh, that are imposed. Um, with um, severe repressions against anyone who is... Um, who dares protest uh, against, uh, against the invasion. Uh, on the 6th of uh, March alone, 5,000 protesters have been arrested. Um, seen reports of people um, um, getting beaten up um, in the uh, po uh, police stations. Um, Draconian media restrictions have been imposed. A special law has been passed uh, by the State Duma, uh, which um, uh, essentially bans any reporting of the military operations uh, that contradicts what the official information from the uh, Russian Ministry of Defense. Um, Many of the, uh, well, there's, there actually were very few alternative uh, media outlets left uh, in Russia um, in the wake of whole uh, many years of um, uh, restrictions and persecution against um, um, independent journalists. Uh, whatever uh, outlets were left um, have either chosen to stop operating because for the fear of um, facing criminal prosecution, uh, or if they do operate, uh, they operate uh, uh, under severe restrictions. For example, um, the um, um, 
main opposition newspaper, Novaya Gazeta, whose um, editor-in-chief, um, Dmitry Muratov, uh, got the Nobel Peace Prize um, last year, stopped uh, reporting. Uh, they, they're still operating, they're still publishing um, articles uh, and um, extended pieces, but they have stopped the information service. And that's just one example. <clears throat> so the question is, why is this happening? Why is this happening? What exactly is uh, the purpose of this? Um, I'm not going to answer this question today because I don't think anyone can, um, except for one man, uh, and he won't tell us. Um, but uh, I'm going to try to at least glean some of the motivation behind it. So. The benefit, there is no benefit to anyone. Obviously, there is no benefit to Ukraine. There is no benefit to the Russian people. There is no benefit to the Russian elites um, who have been um, put under very severe sanctions uh, by the Western countries and uh, the majority, well, all of them, in fact, um, um, are now unable to access their uh, foreign assets, They're unable to access their super yachts, uh, their mansions, and uh, I'm just going to, I'm sure you've seen this picture before, this uh, absolutely grotesque kind of Gogolian site uh, of the so-called Security Council meeting that uh, Putin hosted um, on the 21st of February, as he, um, just before he um, declared the um, um, recognition of the so-called People's Republics of uh, Donetsk and uh, Luhansk. Um, so, sitting there, as you can see, about I don't know, 30, 50 meters removed from uh, from the rest of the um, of the group, he called each person to the stand, uh, asking them to summarize, like a school teacher, their support for the DNR and LNR. And uh, just this one person here, the only woman in that room, uh, the only woman in that Security Council. This is the. Um, Valentina Matvienko, who is the speaker of the Russian Federation Council. Uh, she, she sits there, uh, her eyes filled with absolute horror, as you can see. Uh, she's looking at him. She was one of the um, most ardent supporters of um, his policies. Um, she's been supportive of his policies all the way through, uh, most notably um, um, after the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and, uh, of course, now as well. Um, an interesting fact, she herself was born in Ukraine, in uh, the city of uh, Shepetivka, which is in, um, in the west of Ukraine, and this is where she grew up. Uh, she went to a nursing school there uh, before she made a career in uh, Leningrad. So whatever um, actions that the Federation Council formally authorized, the upper chamber of the Russian parliament has uh, authorized, she of course is completely responsible for, and um, I don't know what's going on through her mind at this moment, but you can see it all in her eyes, I guess. Um, so for the explanation, so there was no explanation uh, just then. Um, the explanation followed um, 
A couple of hours later, when uh, Putin announced his, um, um, his decision, um, and just after that, um, when uh, President Zelensky responded, um, he uh, spoke um, like a human being. He spoke in human words. Um, he, as you know, probably is, is a former comedian who has now turned a tragic hero, um, spoke um, human words um, in a human language, appealing uh, to the Russian people uh, not to kill um, those with whom they have um, familial ties, uh, because we do share the same DNA. Um, Putin, on the other hand, um, in announcing the special military operation, uh, gave his uh, audience a history lesson, or rather there were two history lessons. There's one on the 21st of February, there's one on the 24th. The first one, which was about the recognition of the republics, everybody thought that would be the end, um, and it wasn't. And then uh, there was another 30 minutes of a uh, similar kind of talk uh, on the 24th of February. Now, the talk on the 21st, um, I actually struggled uh, to listen to uh, in its entirety. It was, it was long, it was outrageous, and it was tedious. Um, much of it was a resta restatement and um, extension of what he had already said before. Um, it's, I don't know, it's kind of a, I had a feeling, um, you know, it's uh, somewhat like an old man, you know, at a dining room table, had had too much to drink and goes on lamenting the current state of affairs and how, um, how things are never right, except you can't tell him to calm down and have a nice cup of tea, um, except he is, he has sole charge of the world's largest country and a massive nuclear arsenal to go with it. Um, and um, the world, as he sees it, becomes the world that everyone else has to now inhabit. Um, Russian, uh, prominent Russian writer uh, Vladimir Sorokin um, um, published a, a column in The Guardian, uh, just after the invasion started. And he really is a prophetic, profoundly prophetic author, because in 2005 he wrote uh, a novel, The Day of the Aprichnik, which kind of um, is a, um, an amazing dystopia portraying kind of a neo-medieval uh, Russia with uh, Aprichnina, Ivan uh, Grozny's um, uh, secret police, as it were, are uh, operating, having the terrible secret police operating in um, um, the rush of computers and mobile phones. So Sorokin, in, in the Guardian um, article, um, 
had this to say, and I'm going to quote this. Pyramid of power poisons the ruler with absolute authority. It shoots archaic medieval vibrations into the uh, ruler, his retinue, seeming to say you are the masters of a country whose integrity can only be maintained by violence and cruelty. Be as opaque as I am, as cruel and as unpredictable, everything is allowed to you. Um, you must call forth shock and awe in your population. The people must not understand you, but they must fear you. Now, this, I think, is incredibly accurate. Um, and the, um, the horror of it is that um, it hasn't been since the death of Stalin in 1953 uh, that Russia had a leader who could actually say to the rest of the world that reality is what I say it is. Um, he, after the death of Stalin and Khrushchev's de-Stalinization, um, no single leader was in charge to the degree uh, that Putin is in charge now. Now, Khrushchev uh, himself, product of Stalin's time, made snap decisions without consulting his colleagues uh, in the Politburo, but he had also created checks and balances uh, within the Soviet communist system that eventually had him removed from office for making just those kinds of decisions. And he acquiesced uh, to the removal, uh, noting grudgingly in his memoirs that it was perhaps his biggest achievement that uh, his colleagues could remove him simply by voting. Um, the Soviet Union, in its late stage, uh, was not ruled single-handedly by one person. All major decisions were taken by a collective body, certainly not a democratic body by any stretch, um, but it was a collective body nonetheless, a body that was elected by the Central Committee of the Communist Party, um, and all the decisions, all the major decisions that were passed were discussed there and voted upon. Even the invasion of Afghanistan was not a unanimous vote. There were dissenters in the Politburo, but the majority were in favor. Um, Putin did not consult with anyone when making his decisions to move on Ukraine. It was his decision alone. And whatever advice he received on it was given to him by people um, who simply told him what he wanted to hear. Well, as, as you know, access to Putin is, is, uh, is impossible even. You know, he's, uh, he's sitting there. Uh, like indeed some kind of, uh, I don't know what, uh, in, his, in his den, um, any, any Russian who is not part of his um, um, innermost circle uh, has to uh, quarantine for two weeks before they access uh, his person. Um, those foreign leaders who are to be admitted to him um, have to um, uh, do a PCR test uh, that's taken by a Russian physician. And as I'm sure you know, uh, uh, President Macron and uh, the German Chancellor 
Olaf Scholz uh, refused to do that, and uh, for that reason, they had to set up that ridiculous table. Um, well, actually, there's yet another uh, picture of uh, Putin consulting uh, with his defense minister, Shoigu, right? So he doesn't trust even him to come um, closer than, well, I don't know how many meters uh, away they are. Um, now, all evidence now points to the fact that the decision to start the war was not spontaneous. It had been in the pipelines uh, for quite some time, and in all likelihood, uh, the preparations began in the middle of 2021, which is when Putin published um, another piece of historical scholarship um, on the Kremlin website uh, in both the Russian and the Ukrainian languages. Uh, this was an article entitled On the Historical Unity of Russians and Ukrainians. Came out on the 12th of July. Now, this certainly, now with hindsight, um, I, I'm seeing that this was no coincidence uh, because this was the beginning of um, the narrative that he has been now pushing persistently and uh, all the way to the start of the events. So these uh, two speeches that he delivered on the 21st and the 24th of February uh, elaborate on some key theses of that last year's article and allow one to reconstruct uh, the view of reality according to Putin, uh, which again is uh, uh, very peculiar. So what I'm going to do now is take you through uh, some of the key tenets of that article um, and... Uh, kind of comment on uh, some of its uh, statements. Uh, I will, I'm, I'm going to um, um, summarize them for you and um, explain why these statements are so important uh, to Putin uh, and then again comment on them. So he starts out by saying that in the Middle Ages we all had one common root, which is, of course, uh, something that is a historical fact. Here's a quote. Russians, Ukrainians, Belarusians are all descendants of ancient Rus, which was the largest state in Europe. Indeed, Slavic and other tribes across uh, um, the vast territory um, Later, like other European states of that time, ancient Rus faced a decline of central rule and fragmentation. At the same time, both the nobility and the common people perceived Rus as a common territory, as their homeland. Now, why is this important? Of course, the key idea for Putin is that uh, since the times of the early Middle Ages, uh, people who lived on the lands that are contemporary Ukraine and Belarusia, and also significant part of European Russia felt, them, felt, felt, one, uh, felt one nation. Uh, and he um, uses here, uh, well, in Russian, uh, words that are contemporary to us, like people, like fatherland, discrimination. So he's, you know, sending us to the... Uh, a kind of contemporary understanding. Um, well, this is, again, this is something that you can't really argue with, um, but, you know, he's drawing conclusions from it that are, 
quite, um, quite distinct. And uh, also, the, we, know, we know what the um, chroniclers are saying about the unity uh, of Rus. Uh, but the, the term Rus um, in the chronicles actually um, is used more uh, during the time of fragmentation and disintegration of the region. Um, that's when all the Eastern European lands, um, uh, East Slavonic lands, uh, are beginning to be called Rus. But, uh, of course, we have no idea about the local identities and what um, local um, early medieval Eastern Slavs uh, call themselves, how they felt, and how they, whether they felt um, connected or related uh, to the other ones. So this is something that we can't really comment on. Now, Again, this is one of the least debatable um, points. But he moves, uh, he moves further uh, from there, and this is where we can see a trajectory already. So it's either a move away, uh, a move towards Moscow or a loss of identity. Um, and that happens um, during uh, and after the um, Mongol conquest uh, when both Lithuanian Rus and Moscow Rus separate out. Uh, this, is, uh, this is what happens when some of the Western principalities of the early medieval state fall under the um, fold of um, Lithuania, and the eastern Slavonia, well, the eastern part of it um, is um, goes down a separate path uh, for, for several centuries, uh, subjugated. Um, uh, to the Mongols and paying, paying tribute to them. Um, so he's saying here that uh, Catholicism, Catholicism advances in the 14th century. Lithuania's ruling elite converts to Catholicism in the 16th century. Uh, they so they remained pagan for the longest time in Europe. They're, they're the um, uh, the longest uh, paganism was the longest. Um, in Lithuania, of all of European states. So they converted to Catholicism, Christianity, um, uh, um, Catholicism in the 14th century, and in the 16th century, Putin says, signed the Union of Lublin with the Kingdom of Poland to form Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Rzeczpospolita in Polish, and the Polish Catholic nobility received considerable land holdings, privileges in the territory of Rus. And part of the Western Orthodox, um, Russian Orthodox clergy submitted to the authority of the Pope. So this is the birth of the Uniat Church, which was a kind of a compromise uh, in um, Poland-Lithuania, whereby the uh, Orthodox um, clergy were um, essentially allowed to practice uh, in the Orthodox way while um, submitting to the authority of the Pope. So why is this important? Uh, why is this important for Putin? So the, 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 the narrative here is uh, about the idea that people who lived on the territory of, common, of, of contemporary Ukraine and who uh, found themselves outside of Moscow's gravitation pull um, were prosecuted persecuted and um, oppressed. 
Now, this is, uh, there's some half-truths here, and there are some, um, some lies here. Well, it is true, of course, that the um, Orthodox um, nobility were under pressure to uh, um, accept the uh, authority of the Pope, uh, particularly after the um, coming to power of King Sigismund II um, in Poland-Lithuania. Um, and he was an ardent Catholic and um, uh, did put pressure on, uh, on the Orthodox um, nobility as he wanted to uh, strengthen and extend the Catholic influences. But his policies were not entirely forceful um, because uh, this was not only about uh, political pressure, this was also about um, European um, um, re religious, religious enlightenment uh, that um, followed Reformation and Counter-Reformation. Um, this was about um, education, greater education of the, of the clergy. Uh, these processes um, always um, attracted the attention of the Orthodox, of the Orthodox nobility, who uh, really wanted to... Um, uh, who were drawn to the... Um, to the fruit of uh, to the fruit of uh, enlightenment or that, that kind of enlightenment it was pre-enlightenment of course but religious enlightenment uh, which uh, in the orthodox uh, tradition uh, was absent because uh, in Muscovy there was no philosophy there was no literature there was no um, Art that was not religious art. Uh, this was all part and parcel of the Orthodox tradition in, in, in Moscovy. Uh, and living in the Western principalities, they were exposed to that and they were drawn to that. Uh, and so this was not, again, entirely, uh, entirely forced. So let's move on to the next uh, point. And this is where we're coming closer to uh, the union of Ukraine and Russia that occurred in 1654. Um, so his claim is that the ancestors of today's Ukrainians dreamed of joining Russia. That was their um, absolute dream to be part of, uh, of Moscovy. This is where um, Hetman Bogdan Khmelnytsky, the leader of uh, the Parisian Cossacks in uh, eastern Ukraine, uh, revolts against the uh, Polish nobility and um, struggles for autonomy from Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Again, this is a well-known fact. Um, the... Um, Cossacks were not heard when he appealed in 1641. 
um, demanding that the rights of the Russian Orthodox population be respected. Uh, and so he made appeals to Moscow, which were considered by Zemsky Sabor, which was the uh, advisory council to King Alexei. And the body, supreme representative body of the Russian state, uh, well, however this was representative, I don't know, decided to support their brothers in faith and take them under patronage, says Putin. So in January 1654, the Perioslav Council confirmed that decision. Subsequently, the ambassadors of Bogdan Khmelnytsky and Moscow visited dozens of cities, including Kiev, whose population swore allegiance to the Russian Tsar. Um, so, this is important to Putin, of course, and this is pretty much the narrative that the Soviet textbook uh, gave you. I mean, this is exactly how it was taught to us. This is exactly how it was taught to Putin, so he really didn't need to consult any historical sources to um, produce this narrative, because I'm sure he remembered that from his uh, seventh uh, form a history lesson. So, um, um, the narrative, the Soviet narrative, was that uh, Ukraine uh, joined Russia in 1654, um, again of its own volition, joyfully uh, and triumphantly, and we've been forever ever since. Now, this was certainly not quite like that. Uh, and uh, when in my, um, in my uh, Russian history course, I tell students always that this to me reminds, uh, this reminds me of, uh, of the Teteriti Oaitangi actually, uh, because this treaty that was signed in 1654 um, had very um, different expectations on both sides. So people who were signing it uh, were signing up to two different things. Uh, Khmelnytsky uh, was simply uh, appealing for protection he wanted autonomy, he wanted independence under the protection of the Tsar. Now to the Tsar, this was simply him petitioning to become uh, a Moscovite subject and all of the uh, residents of Zaporizhian um, uh, Sech, the um, Cossack host, were becoming the subjects of the Tsar. So, um, pure and simple. So there was no, there was quite a bit of complexity there, which of course is completely absent from here. And again, this is a Soviet narrative of, um, of that event. Now, moving on in time, uh, Putin tells us that there was no Ukraine. Uh, there was a Malorossia, a Malorossia or Little Russia, was a term that was uh, widely in use uh, from the um, uh, 17th century onwards. So um, the name Ukraine was used more often in the meaning of the old Russian word Akraina, and this is where the word does indeed come from. Kai in Russian is the edge, so Ukraina is a country on the edge, on the periphery. Um, and this actually refers to various border territories. Um, in all sorts of written sources, uh, 
all the way back, going all the way back to the 12th century. Um, and the word Ukrainian, he says, uh, actually um, originally referred to frontier guards who protected the external borders. So Ukraine has no meaning whatsoever in terms of a national identity. It just means, just means frontier lands uh, and people who live in those frontier lands. Now, this is important clearly uh, because he wants to prove uh, that the um, Ukrainian people, Ukrainian people that are separate from the Russian nation is really a kind of a, a later imagining. Um, the word Ukraine, moreover, has no clear geographical or ethnocultural context. But the word Malorossia or uh, Little Russia is a, a correct, correct word. Um, now, this is not really, uh, again, not entirely true at all. As the word, um, the word Ukraina uh, does have, as I said, um, this uh, etymology of, um, of being on the edge. Uh, and um, this was originally uh, a term for the uh, middle Dnieper region in the um, uh, Great Principality uh, of Lithuania, Great Duchy of uh, Lithuania. In the Polish language, uh, the word Ukraine uh, is firmly fixed by the 17th century, and in this, um, it, um, and, and so it, it moves into the Russian language already uh, with this distinct meaning. Distinct meaning that this is Ukraine, Ukraina is, is, that, uh, is, that, um, is that area. Uh, and at the same time, simultaneously, the word Malorossia, indeed, Little Russia, um, also comes into use and it is used widely in official um, documents uh, and also in the, in the documents um, that signed by the um, hetmans, the leaders of the uh, Cossack, uh, of Ukrainian Cossacks. Um, so both terms um, were actually interchangeably used, uh, not just Malorossia, but uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukraina as well. And uh, they could mean different things in different contexts. They could mean like left bank Ukraine, right bank Ukraine, or altogether. So there were no uh, clear definitions. And uh, just to say that this is, <laughs> Ukraine is actually not a word, but Malorossia is the word, uh, that's, that's just nonsense. Um, now, this here is completely outrageous. So uh, separate Ukrainian language never existed. Um, so the... Um, Cooperation of Western Russian lands into single state was not merely the result of political diplomatic decisions, underlined by the common faith, shared cultural traditions, and I would like to emphasize once again, language similarity. So why is this important? Now he, of course, uh, stresses that the annexation of the little Russian lands to greater Russia was a process that was natural um, uh, and 
based on the fact that the people actually spoke pretty much the same language and were no different uh, from the uh, Russians. Um, now, it is also true, of course, uh, that the languages at that stage in the 17th century were more similar than they are now, um, but they were already quite distinct. Uh, there was a very clearly distinct uh, literary language uh, at, at the time. Uh, in the 18th century, uh, there are uh, very um, important uh, literary works being written in the language that is clearly Ukrainian, uh, that is clearly different from, from Russian. Uh, so in, while it was not, again, uh, as distinct uh, as it is now, uh, it was still already a, uh, a separate language. Um, although in, in conversation, um, greater Russians and little Russians understood each other probably uh, without an interpreter. But that is true to a degree even now, even though Ukrainian has diverged from Russian um, um, further. But the languages are closely related, but that does not make them the same language, of course. And finally, we come uh, to the idea that the Ukrainian nation itself is a myth. So the idea of Ukrainian people as a nation separate from the Russians, he says, um, started to form, gain ground among the Polish elite, and that was part of the um, sort of nationalism. Of course, the 19th century uh, is rife everywhere. And uh, in Poland especially, Poland uh, under the um, Russian imperial uh, power um, throughout the 19th century and uh, fiercely resenting it. Um, and so Putin claims that this is all um, the Poles' work. Uh, the Poles kind of stirred this nationalist sentiments within the little Russians and, um, uh, and so they concocted notions that Ukrainians, even notions that Ukrainians are the true Slavs and the Russians, the Moscovites are not, and that's used for political purposes, tool of rivalry between European states, and so on and so forth. So this, of course, is a key thesis uh, that Putin has, uh, over which he builds his entire historical uh, edifice. Uh, the Ukrainian idea is uh, pushed by external forces, in this case, the Poles, again, fighting for independence against Russia, and only a very small part of the local elites. Uh, and he re repeats this uh, multiple, multiple times. Um, and he transplants this into other contexts. Of course, to him, this is, you know, the, the same happened in uh, 1918 when uh, Ukraine was... Um, uh, engineered as a separate state by Austria-Hungary Austria uh, at the end of World War I. And now, right, um, well, the Bolsheviks, uh, Bolsheviks too, um, forced this idea of Ukrainian nationhood, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And now it is the collective West that is doing that. Uh, in the 19th century, um, Again, the situation was really, really uh, complex uh, because 
there were multiple identities uh, that people had. It was a very um, uh, complex hierarchy of identities. Uh, a resident of Little Russia, uh, especially in the 18th century, uh, could consider themselves a Little Russian um, in terms of their culture, in terms of their language, in terms of, in terms of their customs, which were very distinct. They could say that they're Russian because they can uh, profess the Russian faith, that is um, Russian Orthodox faith. They could identify themselves as a subject of the Tsar and a subject of the Hetman. Uh, so throughout these times, um, again, all the way back, uh, going back to the 16th, 17th century, uh, Ukrainians actually did identify themselves as Ukrainians, uh, that is people living on the border. Uh, so, again, gross oversimplification and uh, something that is uh, really uh, driving the same point home. Ukraine does not exist. Ukraine is not a nation. Ukraine is just part of greater Russia and nothing else. And yes, we are united, we are brothers and sisters, but we are so because uh, there is no separate Ukraine. Um, so a few words uh, about the Bolsheviks uh, who formed Ukraine, as it is now, by artificially extending its borders and forcibly Ukrainizing a large percentage of uh, its population. Now, this is, uh, this is very, also a very complex thing uh, because the, uh, the, the Bolsheviks had um, promoted indigenization policy, which was part of the um, uh, nationalities uh, policies of the Bolsheviks, um, of course, um, Marxist ideology defines the nation-state as a product of late capitalism. And, of course, under communism, all nations will merge and people live together as one. So there is no nationhood as such, eventually. Uh, so there are classes. Ethnicities don't matter. Languages don't matter. It's the classes that matter. Uh, and all we have to do now is to make sure that um, all those nations coming under the fold of the, uh, of the Bolsheviks do not see this as yet another incarnation of the Russian Empire, do not uh, fear uh, being oppressed by Russian chauvinists. So the, the Bolsheviks engaged in nation building, they engaged in indigenization, that is encouragement of indigenous languages, uh, education in indigenous languages, uh, um, uh, fostering cultural traditions of uh, the indigenous people. Uh, I, I, well, those traditions that did not contradict um, communist ideology, of course. Um, and, and this, of course, determined the, uh, eventually the federative um, makeup of the USSR the fact that in 1922, 100 years ago, actually, this year, uh, it was um, formed as a federation with the right to secede being written into the Soviet constitution for each nation that signed up to the Union Treaty. Now, this was a paper, paper right, of course. So nobody really uh, dreamed of seceding from the USSR. Uh, but um, Putin says, well, that was a time bomb. The time bomb that actually exploded in 1991 when the 
Belavesia agreements were signed and the Soviet Union was dissolved against the will of the people of the USSR. Uh, and that uh, was the end uh, of the greatest country that's ever been. Not because it was Soviet, but it, because it was uh, so big and so powerful. So it's not that he's lamenting the Soviet legacy, he's lamenting the USSR. Uh, and so this is the history of Ukraine. Again, according to Putin, this is a snapshot from the Russian State TV, Russia uh, 24. So the yellow in the middle here is the actual Ukraine. He says, well, that's the area that was the, um, under the control of the Parisian Cossacks in 1654 when the uh, Treaty of Perislavl was signed. Then there were all these presents, he's saying. So Ukraine got, all, got given all these regions by, now here the Tsars, here Lenin in 1922 when he gifted to Ukraine Donbass um, and um, uh, Novorossiya, that is southern, southern Ukraine now, uh, areas that had been uh, won from the Ottomans. Stalin uh, gifts eastern Poland after the, well, 1939, after he's packed with Hitler and then those territories were reincorporated in 1945. And finally, the little present from Khrushchev in 1954 is Crimea. Uh, which he transferred uh, for no reason whatsoever, uh, Putin claims, although there was a very good reason, in fact. Um, uh, my colleague Diana Verina Lugova, uh, a former PhD student, uh, wrote a brilliant thesis on uh, just that uh, particular transfer and uh, the reasons uh, for which it was made um, and why it was a failure, but what was behind it. Um, so to Putin, this, this was just uh, complete nonsense and an insanity, and why uh, gift Crimea to Ukraine? In gross violation of legal norms that were enforced at the time, which is also blatantly untrue because all the legal norms of the Soviet um, um, state were followed. Um, and finally, for the grand conclusion, the grand finale of his, of his article and for all of his articles, Ukraine has been led by neo-Nazis, he says. Now, finally, after the Maidan, after all of that, after the breakup of the USSR, after all those years of um, uh, Russia helping Ukraine stand uh, on its feet, supplying Ukraine with cheap fuel and supporting uh, the Ukrainians, Ukraine still uh, was ungrateful and was always looking west. And there in 2014, uh, it overthrew the legitimate regime of um, Yanukovych, um, who Putin does admit was corrupt, uh, but this, he says, was no reason to indulge neo-Nazis in militarizing the country and uh, essentially falling under external controls, becoming puppets in the hands of the US, the European Union, uh, Ukrainians being supervised, um, by foreign security services and armed forces, um, forces uh, um, by foreign advisors, military development of the territory of Ukraine, deployment of NATO infrastructure, and so on and so forth. And he mentions uh, law on the indigenous peoples that was adopted uh, in Ukraine um, last year was um, adopted under the cover of large-scale NATO exercises in Ukraine. And 
Well, this was a law about the indigenous people of uh, peoples of Crimea, which of course Ukraine no longer controls. And indigeneity here, well, of course Putin is angry because Russians are not included in this law. But this was indigenous people in the same sense that uh, indigenous people of Canada protected uh, the Aborigines in Australia and of course the indigenous people in Aotearoa. So um, it was that kind of indigeneity. The indigenous peoples understood as people who are, uh, have been oppressed throughout their entire existence, who have been taken, uh, whose land was taken off them um, by a greater power. Uh, so this was the law protecting them. But of course, that was a mortal assault uh, to him on the Russian minority in Ukraine. So um, just before I get back, I um, get to my next slide. Um, I would like to um, say a few words about the word uh, neo-Nazi. So the the purpose, the purpose of this limited special operation in Ukraine, special oper military operation in Ukraine, is to demilitarize Ukraine and to denazify it. Now, militarize, of course, is clear. He simply wants to uh, destroy whatever military infrastructure Ukraine has. Denazification, however, is about um, something else. Now, it is true. It is true, and this is not, we would not be um, accurate if we didn't say that uh, the Maidan protests in 2014 uh, did have participation from uh, the ultra-right, the radical right uh, in Ukraine, who did espouse neo-Nazi sentiments. Um, it is true also that uh, the um, pro-independence Nazi collaborators such as Stepan Bandera uh, were lionized uh, in uh, post mandan Ukraine, uh, particularly in the West. But this certainly doesn't mean that uh, Ukraine is being run by a neo-Nazi regime. And if you listen to the Russian news, uh, you will be hearing that uh, it's not the Ukrainian army that's fighting the Russian uh, soldiers, but rather the neo-Nazis, uh, the Naziki, the word is, um, in Ukraine, they're the ones uh, who are fighting the Russian soldiers. Um, and so he is uh, after, he, he's after the denazification of Ukraine, so he wants to denazify the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, who is Jewish. Uh, that is their sensible um, purpose. And here we come to my uh, conclusion. Uh, it's going to take me probably another couple of minutes to go through that, so please bear with me. Uh, now that's on the, on the matter of history. Um, and denazification. Putin has been compared to Hitler quite often uh, lately. Well, I don't think this comparison is as entirely accurate at all um, because um, these are two different things. 
The word fascism, however, does come to mind. Uh, Putin has lately um, confessed um, affection for uh, this particular philosopher by the name of Ivan Ilin, who uh, was uh, one of the ideologists of, of uh, the white movement uh, after the revolution. In 1922, he was sent out um, by Lenin together with uh, a number of other philosophers on the so-called philosophical steamship um, out of Russia, uh, and he spent the rest of his days in Europe. He uh, welcomed Hitler's uh, coming to power, uh, saying that this finally we have a way out from this uh, liberal nightmare. Um, and Putin uses him, he quotes him, and uh, not just him, but his, of course his, his um, People in his inner circle have been start, uh, started to use this name and cite his authority. Um, and uh, here is a quote uh, from Ilyin, a very representative one from 1934, about the Russian idea that uh, must come, Ilyin says, from the very fabric of the Russian soul and Russian history, from their spiritual hunger. This idea must speak of the most important thing in the Russians, both the past and the future, it must shine for entire generations of the Russian people, making their lives meaningful, injecting them with joy. What is this idea? It is the idea of raising a national spiritual character in the Russian people. It's the most important thing. That's forever. There is no Russia without it. And under this spiritual character, he understands Russia's, um, uh, the, 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 um, this exceptional uh, ability of the Russians to love and to believe. Uh, so, and this love and belief has to be irrational. It has to be absolutely irrational, it has to be unconditional uh, rationality, as in the times of Moscovy, when rationality was not part of the orthodox vocabulary, uh, is banned. Um, so, it's essentially about blind loyalty uh, and the new selection, that's Ilian's term as well, that people have to co uh, go through. And if they don't pass the selection, they will be sent off uh, into the, uh, they'll be relegated to the um, bottom of the society. Uh, and people who are incapable to do that will be, um, will be labeled. Uh, so he demands from these new people to unconditionally love and conditionally, unconditionally believe. And there are only three objects of this love. Of this love. The, the, one of them is God. Uh, the other one is uh, motherland, and the third one is, of course, the national leader. Uh, and the Russians, of course, have their own specific, unique faith that completely eclipses the faith of the Catholics, the faith of the Protestants, who, of course, believe incorrectly and worship incorrectly. Uh, motherland is, is burden, uh, burden of land, the burden of the climate, uh, and the burden of uh, hosting uh, a huge number of um, non-Russian uh, nations uh, within, uh, under the Russian fold. Uh, and history sees as um, 
something that, 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 that many centuries of defense and struggle. And Russia, in this, um, in this reading, uh, performs a very important mission. For the longest time, it has been fighting these uh, um, invading neighbors. And he says that this space was given to us. Uh, it was, um, we didn't take it. It was given to us, this, this, this plain, this open, this defenseless uh, space. Uh, it all got given to us. It, uh, it came to us. It threw itself upon us. Uh, it made us possess it from century to century, um, sending hordes of nomads and armies of um, other neighbors. And his political program then is very clear as well. So this, um, essentially, it's a religious, patriotic, militarized uh, kind of vision of society. Uh, those structures have to be um, the foundation of this new regime. The salvation of Russia is in the education um, in the um, strengthening of the Russian national elites. So the idea, the program, and the way of the struggle is in that uh, alone. And that's the only thing that is required. So I think it's, uh, it's, it's really, uh, well, it's uh, scary. Uh, I mean, if you read uh, Ilyin, as, as, I, as I did just recently, uh, Really scary that uh, Putin will have done that, and um, a lot of what he says um, echoes echoes these ideas, echoes this line of thinking, very very clearly. And the the, the kind of society that he's been building, that he's been shaping, slowly but clearly in Russia, uh, but surely um, over the over these years, is kind of leading up to this uh, to this kind of uh, this kind of society. Uh, so again, the word fascism does come to mind um, quite often. And not again, it's not, not the uh, Hitlerite Nazism, which was an ideology based on ethnic superiority. This is not about ethnic superiority. This is probably something that's more um, in keeping with uh, the ideology of, uh, with the fascism of um, Mussolini, indeed, uh, Salazar, um, those kinds of people. Uh, and we can see quite clearly, again, the signs uh, that are distinctly uh, apparent in the fascist regime, regimes of the past of the 20th century, such as the heroization of history, the idea of the unity of the nation, uh, and the domination of the social over the individual, um, also, of course, a very um, considerable ethnic flavor uh, and the glorification of strength, especially military strength, uh, masculinity, um, and um, as well as corporate economy, of course, um, that is uh, entirely subordinated to the tasks that are set to it by the state. And 
on top of it all, the figure of the leader. Now, these are some of the uh, traits of a fascist regime that Umberto Eco um, listed uh, once, and all of them are present uh, in this, um, in what we're seeing, in what we're seeing now. Thank you very much. That's all from me.